Okay, so we'll make a start and make it at six o'clock. Uh, I'm uh, Tom Rath, I'm a historian uh, at UCL. I'm very happy to introduce Patrick Timmons, our speaker today. Um, Patrick has a PhD in history from the University of Texas. He also has a degree in law from the University of Essex. And his work and his research spans a number of different uh, fields and themes. He's worked on um, the history of capital punishment in Mexico. He's worked on uh, uh, human rights law in Mexico, particularly related to freedom of the press. And more recently, he's also worked as an as a advocate and as a translator for Mexican journalists working in contemporary uh, Mexico. So his work encompasses a number of very important and interesting themes. And I think you also get a sense of that from the paper he's going to deliver today. Usually we try and get speakers who are going to talk about at least one really compelling theme and topic. Patrick is going to talk about at least three and maybe four. Mm -hmm. uh, the US-Mexican border, the war on drugs, and also Trump via Nixon. So he's, there's a lot going on in this paper, so it doesn't surprise at night. It's nice, but it doesn't surprise me at all that we've got a healthy audience for this paper. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Patrick, who's going to talk for about 40 minutes, and then we'll have plenty of time for questions and comments afterwards. Okay, um, thank you very much for coming. I guess it's a cliche to, to talk about how dark it is outside, um, and, and you know, we should all really be sort of in, in bed and, and covered up. But I, I, I am British, so I do know what it's like to grow up in the dark. Um, I'm just glad for you, to, for you to come here and listen to me this evening. If you want to interrupt me as I'm going through uh, what I published in actual fact in, in, in NACLA um, earlier this year um, in the spring 2017 edition. Uh, I want to make a plug for NACLA because it, um, it's without footnotes, actually, so it's one, one of the great things about it, um, which, which was kind of annoying when I submitted the article because there were 95 footnotes, which <laughs> disappeared in the editing. Um, so I get to talk to you a little bit about this this, this evening. NACA is the North American Council or Congress on, on Latin America, and they're based out of NYU, and they've been around for a very, very, a very long time. Before we get into the substance of the matter, and I and I begin with something of a, an anecdote from an oral history, can I just figure out um, those of you who work on Latin America? Can we just see? Okay, all right. And people who work on the U.S. Okay, and people who work on drugs. All right, okay. And people who are searching around for research projects of any type, shape, form, and need a little bit of inspiration. Okay, that's good. All right, so there's some things that I can... All right, okay. Well, there are some, there are, there are, there are some points here, here this evening. So I'm going to talk to you about um, Trump's wall at Nixon's border and how Richard Nixon's operation intercept laid the foundation for decades of U.S.-Mexico border policy, including uh, Donald Trump's wall. And probably uh, the less said about Trump, the better. Um, and we'll probably come back to that in, in, in terms of questions. And I don't want to back-end things. You know, I'm a historian, I believe in process, and it's an important methodological tool, right? And so I'm not, you know, I never set out to do this research in order to be able to try to understand Donald Trump. I set out to do this research to try to understand what it's like living on the U.S.-Mexico border, a place that I've lived five months in Juarez and then three years in El Paso, Texas, and crossing backwards and forwards frequently. So let me begin here with an oral history um, from, from UTEP, uh, from a customs inspector, um, and I think I'll just get into it and, and, and see where we get to, and then 
I'm going to lead you through some slides, and I hope it's not, of course, death by PowerPoint. There are rather a lot of them, and I'm not going to. I'm going to read parts of the article, just just let you know. I'll read parts of the article in the hope that you'll go back and have a look at some of the article and see how it's actually fleshed out, right, in terms of words on the page and what happens with the structure of all of this. Do you recall... This is a back and forth between Oscar Martinez, who's a historian, and, 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 and William Hughes, who's a customs inspector. Do you recall any humorous experiences that you might have observed or been involved in in your work in the customs service? In retrospect, it's all humorous now. It's been a big joke on us. Oh, I don't know. I guess there have been some funny things. I thought Arthur's portable toilet was one of the best I've ever run into, but I know that there are some stories I just can't think of any. Last time, this is Oscar Martinez again, last time we asked Lewis Jones the same question, and right off the bat, he couldn't remember anything. And then when we finished, one story after another, Hughes again. I remember arresting Jesus one night. <laughs> that was kind of funny, yeah, I was duty agent. We used to have duty agents, and that, all, that way all the agents wouldn't get called out, you know. So the inspectors called me one night late, and this must have been back in the early 60s. This was before hippies, if you can remember back that far. But the inspectors called me up and said, you the duty agent tonight? I said, yeah. May have been Andy Tandro, I don't know. Some of the inspectors are still here that I knew when I was a buck agent. Says, well, you better come on down here because we've got a guy with some marijuana. He claims to be Jesus and we can't arrest him. So I get in my car and I come down. Lived right up there on Schuster. It was a real quick down to the Santa Fe Bridge. And sure enough... Here's this guy, rather tall guy, with long flowing sheets on and big beard and a lot of hair, and he did look somewhat like pictures of Jesus, you know? And he had this funny looking car, and I thought it was a taxi cab painted over, and that's what it turned out to be. You know, those funny cabs they have in New York, those real square looking jobs with the big doors on them. They're made by some particular company, it was one of those deals. And sure enough, he had, uh, the inspectors had taken from him one of those glass vials that good Cuban cigars used to come in, manicured marijuana. So he was telling everyone how they were without authority to arrest him. Number one, you really can't arrest God, you know, and he was the son of God. And besides that, customs. You people in customs have only the authority to arrest people that are bringing things into the country. Smuggling things into the country. Whereupon all the inspectors agreed to that, and he says, well, I didn't bring this marijuana into the country. I got this marijuana in Brooklyn. <laughs> and what had he done? He was one of those guys that had answered the ad in the paper. Drive my car to California. You know, that type of thing. And he had a couple of cats in this car that had been traveling. One was an Angora cat, and I think the other one was one of them evil-looking jobs with the blue eyes. <laughs> Marquand, another interviewer. Siamese. Yeah, that goddamn car smelled. You know how cats... Oh, God, it was awful, see? One whiff of that and you close the door. So I asked him what his name was, and of course he told me it was Jesus. And I said, look, Jesus, I think you're quite wrong about this. Our authority to arrest you here, you say that you got this marijuana in Brooklyn. Right. And you've been traveling across the country on your way to California, just thought you'd stop in this funny little border town of El Paso and go across and see what Mexico was all about. That's right. And you carried the marijuana into the country, so you didn't know about this. And that anecdote stops there, and we have no idea what happened to the cats. <laughs> 
There was a wonderful old guy, sorry, I keep on going just a little bit more. He was a wonderful guy in those days. He's since retired. Captain O'Rourke down in the jailhouse here. So I told the inspectors to call the Animal Rescue League or whatever to come get the cats. Well, this really upset the guy. The cats were his family, you know. And years later, I was to meet an awful lot of people like this guy, but he was the first honest-to-God hippie uh, like Jesus I ever saw. And I thought, this is some kind of weird guy. He's off his rocker, you know. So a guy showed, him, showed up with one of them fun little wagons with the cage in the back and said, where are the cats? He had a funny hat on. Where are the cats? And this guy going, you can't take my cats. He said, who the hell is this guy? Come on, cats. Put them in the truck. I said, the cats are going to their jail, Jesus, and you're going to our jail. And we went down and we got to Captain O'Rourke, took him up in, in, in the wagon, and O'Rourke is behind the counter where you book him the prisoners, you know, and he says, what in the hell have you got this time, Bill? You know, and I says, Captain O'Rourke, this is Jesus. O'Rourke says, Jesus, get on the scale over there and let's see what your weight is. So we locked Jesus up, and to my knowledge, he didn't roll the stone or the thing away from the door. He stayed there for beyond three days. And that's where it should really end. Okay, so let's sort of begin and get into this, and that's an an anecdote which I use in an oral history which I use in the piece. So this is, for those of you who don't know it, and maybe you do, this is, how how many people do know El Paso and Juarez? Right. And you've crossed the border. Yes, okay, all right. So there are some points that I'd like to make in sort of like an analytical tone. Um, and I'd like to make this point, these points uh, quite early on so that we can have a discussion about this. The hemispheric drug war is about the administration of people and products through a, a con- throughout a contested space, which is the international border. And so the drug war is born of politics, seated in law and directed by executive action. And its power to structure relationships has local, social, political, economic, and cultural effects. And the point of this paper, this article, is to really get into a bigger discussion about what happens to local communities on the border when we're talking about the drug war and what's happened since 1969. And obviously that's a a Google map which shows this very, very large uh, border community, which may in fact be two border communities. And historiographically speaking, uh, I need to make a point here, uh, really sort of quite emphatic. I actually grew out of this program, not at UCL, I was at LSE, and I took classes here up at UCL almost 25 years ago. I'm both a Latin Americanist and a U.S. specialist. The PhD is in Latin American history, but I've taught a lot of U.S. history, and I read U.S. history. And I really do think that it's quite exciting what's happened here at UCL, creating the Institute of the Americas and bringing these two uh, different forms of studying the continent, uh, or the continents of the Las Americas, uh, por favor, uh, you know, together. So this is really pretty important to be able to try to talk about both Mexico and the United States, and in particular the US-Mexico border. So here's the two historiographical points, and this is really important And I really, really, really need you to try and take this. I mean, I know you think you're looking very serious. I mean, I really need you to try and take this seriously. The war on drugs did not begin. Irrespective of whatever all those historians tell you, or policy people tell you, political scientists people tell you, the war on drugs, in terms of the hemispheric war on drugs, did not begin with Nixon's speech in 1971. Right? This is extremely important. And I I realize I might be creating a straw person out of all of this, But the important thing in all of this is that it did not begin with a speech. It begins with Operation Intercept in 1969. And I'm going to talk quite a lot about Intercept. um, Because, you know, as much as people do study the drug war in terms of its hemispheric effects, there is not enough attention paid to Intercept. 
right? And we'll talk about that a little bit because its duration is actually, in terms of an actual operation, it's rather short. Uh, but it really needs to be understood uh, and emphasized as a benchmark. And this was known in the 1970s as the benchmark in United States-Mexico narcotics policy. And it's a benchmark, too, for the communities of Juarez or community of Juarez El Paso. The other point that I want to make in all of this, and I'm sorry if I'm taking aim at, at, at people and folks who should be in the room to, to have a conversation about all of this, the war on drugs, in a hemispheric sense, but the war on drugs really needs to be understood in terms of its effects on local communities. It is absolutely not acceptable to be understanding the war on drugs as policy decisions, right? And I'll try to give you some of the texture of what it means as a person traveling through the, the space of the international border, right, to understand that their lives may be structured by policy decisions, right, which are we all know this is a cliche. These decisions are made far, far away from the U.S.-Mexico border. They're made in capitals and Washington, D.C., obviously, and Mexico to Chihuahua to a, a little bit of an extent, maybe Austin, Texas, if we're talking about Texas itself. And then, of course, right, with regard to the uh, single convention on narcotics drugs in terms of the wonks and other folks who speak at the U.N. But it's really important to understand that, you know, in, in many ways, I'm a historian who is trying to understand the situation, the local situation of historically constructed experiences. And so I have no truck, really, in terms of talking about this, right, with regard to people who want to go through policy uh, in terms of what really seems in many ways to become an alphabet soup. So there you go, right, with regard to, to Juarez El Paso. And I just want to sort of, you know, if you're trying to look for a structure in all of these remarks, there's a before, I'm a historian, right, there's a before, there's a during, and there's an after, right? So in terms of what are we talking about when we're talking about this space of Juarez El Paso, right, in terms of the before. And the before is a one city. And I, you know, in many senses, I taught at El Paso Community College, and in many senses, you know, I refuse to talk about Juarez and El Paso. It's Juarez, El Paso, and the people who live and who travel the border, people who I would call transfrontier metropolitans, and I'll talk a little bit more about them as we get to the end of this presentation, Transfrontier metropolitans understand the two places to be linked as well. And the thing that's happened, right, and I think this is important to foreground all of this, is that the people who live in El Paso today who do not cross the border, and there are many, many hundreds of thousands of people who live in El Paso who do not cross the border, they do not see themselves at all connected to Juarez, right? And we'll talk a little bit about that more, I hope, in the question and answer session. Okay, so it's the one city, and... You know, you can go through, uh, you can have a look at it from the air. This side is El Paso, that side is Juarez, right? And you can see that the two are connected to each other. Now, you might say, right, well, this doesn't seem like much Timmons, but in actual fact, it's actually quite a great deal to understand that the two cities are immediate to each other. And it really took about two years to figure out that that's the word to describe the connection between Juarez and El Paso. They're immediate to each other. They're not sister cities, right? One's not on the south of the river and one's not on the north of the river. I wonder whether or not you can even recognize that there's a river there, and that's something that we can talk about too. It's been concreted over. One of the things that I, 
like to sort of say about all of this is that who needs a wall when you've got a moat? Because that's a moat. That's the concreted over river, and I'll try to tell you a little bit why the concrete, the Rio Grande has been concreted over in the, the, in the upper reaches, right, between Juarez and El Paso, and it has to do with the Chamisal Treaty. Um, but, but that's a moat, and it's uh, unscalable, in actual fact, or not transversible, crossable. So there's Juarez and El Paso, immediate to each other. When you go back into some of the, the histories of El Paso and Juarez, and you're looking for what people uh, said to each other. Um, you know, here's a, a very, very old reflection from Maria Concepcion Irigoyen Provencio, who told um, Maria Socorro Tawanka, who's at UTEP, that her mother was born in 1882 in Ciudad Juarez, and she told her, her mother told Conchita, that antes de la Primera Guerra Mundial no había pasaportes, pasaban al paso y venían como si tal cosa, era como quien dice una sola ciudad. And what's really remarkable, so I need to translate that, right? Before the First World War, there were no passports. They went from El, we went from El Paso and back, as, just as if it was anything, right? Uh, it was, as some people said, one city, one city by itself, or, or, or a city. So, I mean, this is, you know, this is fascinating, I think, trying to really figure out, right, how it is that we get, you know, to the present, and we have... El Paso and Juarez distance from each other in many ways, when there is uh, many sort of ways to try and, and link the two. Uh, much of this paper and much of the article uh, which I wrote is based around really sort of thinking about it from the US side of things. And I know we have Latin Americanists in the audience, and I wanted to get just a little bit in here um, about the Mexico side of things. Mexico, starting in the late 1950s, Right, starts to think about modernizing the border and modernizing the border in order to be able to attract tourists and uh, really create a, a, a modern uh, cityscape in all sorts of different ways. And this comes from the, uh, some leaflets, uh, which I found in the Benson Latin American collection. Uh, that's the Modern Art Museum, that's of course the old cathedral in Juarez. Right, and this is the PRONAF, the Programa Nacional Fronterizo. And for those of you who are searching, you know, maybe for a research topic, um, for a, a senior paper, or whatever it is that one does, I've had a lot of uh, American sort of indoctrination in terms of senior theses and the rest of that, or even a PhD thesis, the Programa Nacional Fronterizo, right, which is Mexico's modernization of border cities, it's called the PRONAF. Every border city on the Mexican side, right, has a PRONAF area. And the one in Tijuana is fantastic. The one in Juarez is kind of, you know, run down because it's, it's Juarez. But the point that I want to make here, because I'm not going to spend too much longer on this, right? The point that I want to make here is that there is no study, period, of the PRONAF. None. Whatsoever. You can look around on UMI and the dissertation abstracts and the rest of it. There's not even articles. There's no scholarly articles on the PRONAF. So there's a huge area of study. Why? Because, you know, as you can tell from this particular slide, right, Mexico has an enormous window, 1,600 miles long, adjoining the United States, uh, the country with the highest purchasing potential. This enormous show window must be made into a great commercial, recreational, and cultural avenue. And the Mexicans tried their best, right, with regard to the, with regard to the pronoun. 
So in terms of talking about this before and going back to uh, some of these uh, customs inspectors, and I really want to point this out, right? And I realize, of course, in sort of building all of this up, that those of you who know a lot about border historiography will say that I'm maybe making too much of the idea that the border was flexible, right? That it was fluid, that people could cross it before intercept. Here's a customs inspector, Hudgens, uh, talking about what it was like to be a customs inspector before intercept. Before intercept, at the time you came in, all right, we were a group of greeters. We were public relations men. You never opened a trunk, and if you did, and you didn't catch a load of dope or something, you got your rear end eat up. It was a greeting service. We didn't enforce the law, and nobody really cared. No problems, you know. We're a nice, nice bunch of people. Hello, how are you, sir? You know, fine. Bring anything from Mexico? No, I'm not bringing anything from Mexico. Okay, down the road. I crossed this border. This is Hudgens. I crossed this border from 66 to 69. I crossed it, and I never got checked. I mean, luggage, everything. I even adopted a child, brought that child into the United States with adoption papers, and nobody looked at him. They wouldn't look at your luggage. If you looked at people's luggage, they'd complain to the congressman, you'd get fired. This is a customs inspector saying this. So we, of course, have to talk about drugs, and I want to talk a, quite a lot about politics in, in some ways. And I just want to give you some idea of what Intercept was, was trying to stop. So we've got marijuana from Mexico, opium from Mexico, cocaine from South America, and pills, this is fascinating, really important. Pills, manufactured in the United States, but obtained in Mexico and smuggled back. Crucially, and this is a point which is a hypothesis, a little bit of research in here, but a hypothesis mostly, drug traffickers prior to intercept were US citizens. And there's a need for a lot more research about this particular point. I guess I could go on quite a lot talking about El Chapo and Mexican drug traffickers, and then I guess that would get us to talking about Netflix, and we're not going to be going there in particular. But one of the points that I'd like to make in particular here, for those of you who are interested in some of my work, I, I wrote an article earlier this year, I won't go into this in too much detail, um, about somebody who got arrested on the border, a US citizen who got arrested on the border, for trafficking drugs into the United States earlier this year. And really importantly, right, and this is important, Mexicans don't traffic drugs across the border from Juarez. US citizens traffic, this is in the present, right, so it's not only just about the past, right, but US citizens are the ones who traffic drugs from Juarez, you're a U.S. citizen, you can't get deported, you can maybe spend some time in jail, but you can always go back to Mexico and come back in, right? So this is a, I mean, really a crucial issue. If we want to sort of go into this a little bit more, there's a magic number, and you can look at this by having some of the federal court records in El Paso. There's a magic number for trafficking drugs into the United States, and that is, if I can remember rightly, uh, I think it's, I want to say it's, uh, I'm gonna, uh, I want to say 39 pounds. Uh, 50 pounds and above will get you a felony. Below 50 pounds and it's 
actually less than a felony and only up to two years of jail time, but you'll only you'll have a, a, a probated sentence. So you'll actually be in community supervision. And I think this is an important point to mention. So right. is this pounds in value or weight? No, £39 in weight. Yeah, the, it's all about federal drug sentencing charges, right? And, 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 so uh, this is marijuana. <coughs> this is marijuana yeah. we're talking about, yeah. In, yes, in particular marijuana. So here's uh, the political geography of drugs. Um, in terms of, sort of like, this is a book from uh, the early 80s by John House. We'll talk more, a little bit more about John House later as I speed up a little bit. You can tell, right, that the... Maybe this is quite obvious looking at those lines, right? The, the larger, the, li the thicker the line, right, that's where most of the drugs are going through. So West and South Texas is not a major uh, point for drug trafficking in the late 1960s, early 1970s. And then, of course, you can see that most of the drugs are coming through in the western border, and that's up through California. And that'll start to take us on into our discussion in a moment of Richard Nixon. So here he is, Richard Nixon, on the campaign trail in California in September of 1968. Uh, I begin the article with this claim. Richard Nixon was the first U.S. president who made a promise to close the U.S.-Mexican border to illegal drugs and unwanted people, part of an election-winning strategy. Speaking on the campaign trail from Anaheim, California, in 1968, candidate Nixon promised to deal with the marijuana problem protested by parents of California's youth by intercepting Mexican drugs on the border. So this is a picture uh, from on the campaign trail uh, in, 19, in September of 1968. And crew, I think it's fascinating here, right, that he's referred to as return of a native. And he's talking, he eventually starts to talk about the border. Uh, what do the native sons say about drugs? This is a, a Los Angeles Times article. I won't read it all to you, I think that would be too much, you've already had a bunch of text today, but uh, just the summary is, right, law and order is related to the narcotics problem, Nixon saw the threat from drugs as foreign in origin, this is not, right, about US consumption, this is about Mexican supply, one of the things that he wanted to do was triple the number of customs agents on the international borders, and then tools to detect narcotics in transit and review of smuggling, smuggling laws, and Nixon directed his message at parents of California's youth who had, quote, fallen prey to this disease. As we move on, just emphasizing from this Los Angeles Times article, the emphasis on the drug problem was just part of his now standard campaign speech in which he assailed the Democrats for failure to maintain respect for law and order at home and for permitting this nation to become bogged down in the Vietnam War. I think that interesting sort of line there, it doesn't seem, it seems just suggestive, right? At home. Those of you who know US history very well will understand that I'm taking aim at the Southern strategy as an explanation for Richard Nixon's success in the 1968 election, right? We, this, is, this is his, look at it, now standard campaign speech in which he assailed the Democrats for failure to maintain respect for law and order. And when we think about Richard Nixon's rise, right, often it's very much understood, right, that, you know, that he was a, with a southern strategy at least, you know, race baiting, preying on the people of fears in the South, or at least in the United States writ large. I get that, but one of the things that we have to do is try to disaggregate the campaign, right, try to understand it 
in its, in its different dimensions. Remember, Richard Nixon was not a southerner, right? He was Californian, which is why, of course, the LA Times talks about him uh, as a native son. I can perhaps talk about this more uh, in the question and answer session. So one of the big sort of, I don't know, claims to fame, that's not going to be happening, right? But one of the big sort of, sort of claims to fame in all of this, instead of talking about the border, could we start to talk, please, about the hard regulated border? Because that's what Richard Nixon created. Obviously, Richard Nixon did not create the U.S.-Mexico border. The U.S.-Mexico border is created in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848, right? The question is, and it sort of really frustrates me as somebody who's lived on the U.S.-Mexico border, is why people sort of refuse, I guess this is when what happens when you study things more at a distance, right? They refuse to attach adjectives to the type of border that one, you know, one flows, one goes through. And I, you know, I don't want to bring up Brexit in Northern Ireland, although I already have, right? But it's like, I mean, this is really important. I mean, in terms of these discussions about border making and what it means to make a border, as the anecdote about Jesus, right, you know, sort of tried to lose. Like, you can travel through a border without realizing that the border is there. Part of the deal, in some sort of sense, I really am not a Brexit expert, so I mean, part of the deal with the issue with Brexit is trying to get an understanding, right, that a, a, a British border actually exists, right, at these airports and things. Although I've never quite understood that being growing up in this country. It's like, we know that the border exists. It's like, maybe not in Northern Ireland, because it's not an island, right? But at least in this country, it's like there's sea, you know? <laughs> it's like, that's kind of where the border is. Anyway. Enough of my angst about Brexit. Okay, so in 1968, there's this jam-packed rally. It was the high point of the Nixon campaign thus far. And then as we started, you know, Nixon obviously wins the election in November of 1968. Wonderfully narrated, of course, by Rick Perlstein in Nixon Land. And then we start to, after he takes office, right, is inaugurated... Nixon starts to execute his promise to the parents of California's youth. And I'd just like to go through this with you a little bit. There's this spring 1969 decision to execute a border operation. I want to talk more about this later, I guess. I'm going to focus on sort of putting everything to the end. But there's this firing of Ray Tellez, who was the former El Paso mayor, from the U.S.-Mexico Commission on Development and Friendship, CODAT. It's the, this uh, CODAP has never come back into existence after Nixon killed it uh, in late 1969, early 1970. Ray Teos was a Democrat. In June of 1969, there's a presentation of the JTF report, the Joint Task Force report. You can read the declassified elements of the Joint Task Force report uh, online at the National Security Archive. And then somebody who I'm going to talk about in a moment, uh, G. Gordon Liddy, goes down to the border in 1969, visits every border community in 1969, to tell them that they're going to be rolling out Operation Intercept. In late summer of 1969, there's an experiment to see whether or not the border could be closed to particular types of United States people, right? U.S. Forces personnel from T uh, in San Diego to Tijuana. And then on the 21st of September 1969, Operation Intercept begins. This creates a response, right, provokes a reaction from the Mexican side, a call for Operación Dignidad. And 10th of October 1969, Intercept becomes Operation Cooperation. So that's very quick. 
In terms of the Democrats and the border at El Paso, because we have to sort of think about what Nixon was reacting against, we have the Chamisal Convention and Inter-American Friendships of 1963, which is a Kennedy Treaty, which is executed by Johnson, and this is to return a contested piece of territory between Juarez and El Paso back to Mexico. And there are all sorts of lovely things I'd like to say about that, but I don't want to slow things down too much. Look at this with regard to Democrats. And for those of you who know El Paso uh, in the present, you might know that El Paso is the Democrat stronghold in Texas, right? It is not a competitive place, I mean, for, in terms of Dem Democrats versus Republicans. It is a Democrat city, or the Democrat city. And we kind of have to wonder why and where does all of this loyalty to Democrats come from? Kennedy visited El Paso three times. When he was senator in 56, when he was on the presidential campaign trail in 1960, and when he was president in 1963. Hubert Humphrey, after Nixon's Anaheim speech, goes to El Paso, and from the tarmac at the El Paso airport, makes a campaign speech, and here's an extract from it, right? Uh, the Republican Party has forgotten, if it ever remembered, people of Spanish surname. They've forgotten what we call Mexican-Americans. You can read the record of the Republican Party, and my friends, you'll never find anything about a Spanish-speaking American. To which the audience erupts, right, in Spanish, going, Arriba Humphrey! Right, and, uh, and then he leaves. Uh, never to come back, of course, because he's defeated in the 1968 election. So the Democrats, what have we got going on here? The Democrats are far friendlier to people who live in border communities. Okay, here's a little bit of the jury. It's really, I'm going to show you this in a moment, it's really important to understand that Operation Intercept was not about intercepting drugs at the border. It was a charade uh, or a, a subterfuge. Uh, the idea, as G. Gordon Liddy puts it in his, uh, for those of you who've read it, it's kind of a, a really awful work, but fascinating, his, his autobiography, Will. He says that uh, Intercept nearly closed the border with Mexico. It created a world-class traffic jam. It was an exercise in international extortion, pure, simple, and effective, designed to bend Mexico to our will. Remember, too, that Joe Arpaio, won't mention much more about that, but Joe Arpaio was Liddy's henchman on Intercept. And I think this is really important. One of the chief drug warriors of the United States got his start with Operation Intercept. To just reinforce this point, because everybody wants to quote Liddy about this, and I want to go back to some of these customs officers. This is another customs officer, Hudgens. Uh, Intercept had absolutely nothing to do with catching dope. It was the action taken by a new president who says, quote, we've got to take a stand. We'll call it stopping dope. But basically it was a political move. Look at the record. We handed Intercept on, and every car, every person across this border for ten weeks, in fact it was three, Three weeks, trunk, hood, glove box, purses, pockets, everything was searched. We got less than a pound of dope, and I'm talking about search. We're not talking about looking at the car, we're talking about pulling the seats out, opening the trunk, pounding the spare tire, in the car, in the person. Got less than a pound of dope, but it did teach us one thing. We can enforce the law and make it stick. We're talking about the border. We're talking about the border as a legally constructed uh, entity, right? It's something which you can actually stop people. And the important point about all of this 
The crucial point about all of this is this is federal law. There's no local consultation that's necessary, right? So you have to start to think, for those of you who are sitting there thinking, now where is this going? This turns El Paso, we could talk about Juarez, I think it's probably already this way, it turns El Paso as to a, a place of subaltern status, right? People who live in El Paso, it's like, there's no reason to be taking sort of into consideration what they may want out of any of this. For those of you who can't see in or around the corner, I'm showing a slide from El Paso Juarez in 1969, and you can see the border bottleneck, and this is the birth of the border bottleneck. These are cars stretching all the way. This is the border crossing up here, and these are the cars which are stretching. This is Avenida Juarez going all the way down into Juarez. This is what G. Gordon Liddy loved when he was looking at it uh, from a plane uh, above. He was actually in Tijuana, San Diego when it happened. Here are some of the border inspections. You can see the cars just make it out. You can see the cars here. Drug checks, stall, travel, trade, more inspectors needed at border. Merchants feel the pinch of Operation Intercept. Deserted streets. The empty sidewalk. This picture taken at 9.30am in front of Penny's downtown store looking west on San Antonio Street shows how seriously trade and traffic have been affected since Operation Intercept went into operation. Persons travelling to Juarez board buses next to Penny's on Stanton Street just around the corner. This sidewalk is usually one of the busiest in El Paso. The food in El Paso is atrocious. The food in Juarez is magnificent. The reason why the food in Juarez is magnificent is because Juarez is a center of trade. So therefore, right, if you're in El Paso, Texas, prior to Operation Intercept, where do you go to buy your delicious groceries? The market in Juarez, right? You can buy fish from Sinaloa. In the market in Juarez. What happens if you get snagged on the border trying to carry your fish back from the market in Juarez in the middle of the Chihuahuan Desert? It's going to perish in front of your eyes. There are newspaper reports from the El Paso Herald Post interviewing, this sounds sexist, but this is in the documents, right? interviewing housewives who'd gone to buy their weekly shop in Juarez, going back to the United States, and we have testimony from at least a few people, a few of these housewives, saying, I can't go and buy my groceries anymore in Juarez because I'm going to get trapped, right, at the U.S.-Mexico border. I won't be able to get back in before the fish goes off. El Paso cuisine has never recovered. <laughs> I'd like to do this, but we don't really have time. It's kind of an awful song, uh, but you can catch it for yourself, because I'm sure you're all, I see some of you on your, your phones and YouTubing. Uh, Grace Slick, Jefferson Airplane, 1970. So this is after the big protest on the lawn, right, in front of the, the White House in October. Note that, October of 1969. Grace Slick sings a song called Mexico. I would play it, but I'm not going to. It's two, it's two minutes long. Uh, the crucial thing in all of this is to try to see here, I think. 
For Mexico is under the thumb of a man we call Richard, and he's come to call himself king. But he's a small-headed man who doesn't know a thing about how to deal with the U. This is about where has all the marijuana gone, which in 1970, in the spring of 1970, was a subject of a consumer reports investigation. And for those of you who are interested in this, I really would go back and have a look. Uh, consumer reports of 1970, there's a report called Where Has All the Marijuana Gone? And it's attributed to Operation Intercept. And so this is part of the, sort of the popular reaction, but I won't waste more time on that right now, because time is drawing to an end. Post-intercept, the beginning of the end of the, the one city. Hughes again. In 1969, you recall the now infamous Operation Intercept. I was drafted out of the internal affairs thing to take part in the planning of this Operation Intercept, along with several other people in customs. And after Operation Intercept, which lasted only a few weeks, but will probably last in history forever. My emphasis is on here. They were going to reorganize the Office of Investigations. It will probably last in history forever. Uh, that's actually not true, and that's one of the reasons why I'm doing this work. If you look through contemporary work on the drug war, right, or at least drug policy, drug prohibition, people mention intercept and then move straight on to something else. Something which is fascinating, but I mean, in terms of the way in which people have sort of sidelined intercept. Arrests. There are some famous, very famous, there's very famous time coverage in terms of uh, photography uh, for Operation Intercept, which you can have a look for, your, uh, for yourselves. And then one of the things we're sort of drawing to a close here, this is part of the, the, the really the emphasis on in, in terms of the book and what I'm trying to do. And I'll see whether or not I can do this quickly for you. This is a, a map from John House's Frontier on the Rio Grande. John House was a historical geographer who worked at the University of Oxford and in the late 1970s spent his sabbatical at the University of Texas. And kind of interestingly, he got in a car and he went out to El Paso Juarez and then, after doing a whole bunch of field research, wrote a book called Frontier on the Rio Grande, a book which isn't widely quoted enough or studied. So I'd like to make that point. The crucial thing here is to look at these, this migration right, and see what's happening with migration to Ciudad Juarez. So just try and get an understanding right, of what intercept might also be about, at least not in explicit terms, but what it does. Juarez is attracting enormous numbers of people in this time period. I mean, the PRONAF is really important. It's a magnet, right? It, starts to create the border industrialization program and what we know now as the maquiladoras. Look at that, a 26% increase in out-of-state population to Ciudad Juarez, right, in this period from 1959 to 1970. Along with a similar increase on the El Paso side of people from the United States. And I think this is really important in terms of, I know I said that word important a number of different times this afternoon, but one of the things that it seems to me that the borderlands historians don't quite understand is that El Paso Juarez today, their historical origins need to be traced to the period 1950 to 1960. Trying to think about Juarez and El Paso prior to 1950, that's an impossible task. Right? I mean, that's a, that, that creates something of the identity, but the cities that we 
travel through today, Juarez and El Paso, they're not those cities from, you know, Juarez, a very old city, El Paso, much more recent, right? Nobody was in El Paso prior to 1848. Oscar Martinez, the border historian, talks about El Paso prior to 1848 being populated by cows, right? And nobody on there. There's no reason to be on the northern side of the border prior to 1848. The arable land is south of the Rio Grande, right? And this is crucial. So, as we start to have a look, right, we have to try to think about what is so important about these border bottlenecks. Those are daily commuters in 1975. These are people living in Juarez, and going to El Paso on a daily basis for work. How do you stop them from coming across? Well, if they have crossing papers, you can't stop them from coming across. But you can make it difficult. And that's the point, right, of the US-Mexico border. In, in, in a place like El Paso, is to make the crossing difficult. And I can try and talk about this, I think, maybe better in the question and answer. So you make it difficult so that people have to sit in these cars or cross on foot. And crossing on foot, you know, many of you know the United States, and hopefully you've managed to move away from places like New York and Chicago and, and, and other places where it seems to be okay to, to, or Boston, wander around on foot. It's not a place, of course, which is hospitable to a person who doesn't have a car. So if you're in Juarez, right, and you want to tootle around El Paso, you need to have a car. So trying to tell people, right, they can cross on foot, which is, of course, the sane and rational thing to do, is actually the insane and rational thing to do, because where could you get to in El Paso if you didn't have a car? And these lines are astonishing. You know, at a quiet time of day, you can spend five minutes going through the crossing. At, you know, at Christmas period or Thanksgiving, you can spend three hours, four hours. When we go back to sitting in a car, when we go back to Operation Intercept, the lines were on average six to 12 hours at any of the border crossing. Yes, some of you look skeptical on that particular issue. That's why the fish is perishing, right, in these cars. It's an extremely long time period to wait in a car just to cross... Look at it. I mean, they're meant to be immediate to each other. Okay, let's push on through. So I'm a, you know, I'm a big fan of House's work, and one of the things that House writes is that the international boundary, however, continues to act as an ethnic marker, limiting the northward equalizing flows of population which would otherwise take place. He's wrong on this particular issue, but he's, but he's not wrong because of what he saw. He's wrong of what actually happened. And this is another claim in the larger work which I'm working on. The United States-Mexico border is not a mechanism of racial or ethnic exclusion. It's not racist in intent. The U.S.-Mexico border is exclusive on the basis of citizenship or of having crossing paper rights. 
And this is a crucial point. I haven't really talked to you enough about demography. In the early 1960s, let's see if I can get this right in my files hanging around the top of my head. In the 1960s, El Paso was 60% Anglo. In the present, today, El Paso is 83% Latino. I said Latino. I didn't say Mexican. A lot of those 83% of the people who consider themselves to be Latino living in El Paso do not cross to the other side and do not see themselves as Mexican. This is not about keeping brown people out. This is about assimilating right, people into US citizenship. And it's taken generations, at least three. So, you know, the people that I was teaching in El Paso Community College, you look out into the room and you say, how many people are grandparents, right, are from Chihuahua? Because there's a migratory chain. That's what I showed you, that map, right? The first step is Chihuahua City, the next step is Juarez, the next step after Juarez is El Paso. The point in all of this, right, is to really try to grapple with those people who have, in terms of understanding and their identity, those people who have Mexican grandparents who don't speak, the, I'm talking about the children, right, or the, the grandchildren, the children and grandchildren who don't speak Spanish and who've never been to Mexico. And who consider themselves, of course, to be American. Americans who are comfortable and safe behind their closed border. Closed to whom? Closed to people who don't have the right to cross into the United States. To just move into, you've been very tolerant, to just move into the end here and try to think about sort of what it means to sit in these cars every day and really some of the astonishing things behind it. Uh, this is not a quote, this is me summarising a report from uh, the US Department of Agriculture. Uh, waiting in a car is frustrating, anxiety-inducing. I mean, you know, you're driving a car from Juarez, you may have parked it in the parking lot, you don't know what you're carrying back, right? Um, there's, there's all of that, but just in terms of economic costs, and I guess this is where we kind of get into Trump a little bit, we can talk more about him in the Q&A, but uh, what economic sense does it make to have this hard regulated border with these wait times? And it's really important to understand that, you know, and I think this is one of the things that I want to say to you in this, in this conclusion. We're talking about a wall effect. We're not talking about a wall. Who needs a wall? You don't need a wall. You just have to need people to wait, right? It doesn't matter if there's a wall there, if you've got people waiting. I mean, politically, it's symbolic and significant and the rest of it. You've got people waiting at bridges, right? You don't need a wall to keep people out. You need to slow people who have legitimate rights crossing into the United States to make it feel like there's a wall in existence 
And Gustavo Díaz Ordaz, president of Mexico, said this, that Operation Intercept created a bronze, a wall of suspicion between the two countries, the United States and Mexico. In 2008, wait times would cost the U.S. 54,000 jobs and as much as 12 billion U.S. dollars. The projections for 2035 stagger even more. 54 billion U.S. dollars costing 850,000 jobs at the El Paso Ciudad Juarez border alone. Now, has there been resistance? Absolutely. Right? And this, I really want to talk just a very little bit about the, this transfrontier metropolitan community, the people who cross back and forth, because they've been there for generations, and some members of the family have crossing rights, and because some members of the family have crossing rights or are U.S. citizens, other members of the family can have crossing rights too. So here, this is from the Diario de Juarez in the 1980s. This idea that the, the two nationalities can exist together in what some people would see as two spaces, but these people see as one. So resistance, probably mostly futile for the reasons why I've talked to you about just a little bit uh, before. Um, the people of El Paso, the people of Juarez, don't control the border, don't control... Uh, there's no local consultation. And every moment since... 1969 and these spurts, right, uh, which have now settled into life on the border. Operation Blockade hold the line in 1993, which started to put uh, Border Patrol agents at 50-yard intervals along the line, uh, created by Silvestre Reyes, who was a Democrat uh, congressman from El Paso. Post 9-11, there's compulsory customs inspections. They've become fully permanent. And crucially, if you want to speed up those lines, the only way you can speed up those lines is by putting more customs officers on the bridges. And one of the things that I find sort of lamentable in all of this is that El Paso and its citizens who pay taxes in El Paso have to pay for additional customs and border prote protection agents in order to be able to speed up those lines. It seems to me to be perverse, right? to get local people who are affected by federal policy uh, to have to pay in some ways for their own subjugation. Now, I want to just mention this, and we'll go through it, uh, but just very, very quickly. Uh, the best historian, I think, perhaps, of, of Richard Nixon is Rick Perlstein uh, in, in Nixon land. And I, I've been having a look around. You know, I, I, I shouldn't say this in public. I predict... I will. I predicted Trump's rise in 2015, me fustigating on Facebook. And one of the reasons why I did that is because I, I read Pearlstein's Nixon land, and it just seemed so apparent to me that Donald Trump and Richard Nixon were the same person, right? And Rick Pearlstein won't have any of it. Uh, Rick Pearlstein, there are a number of articles that he's written. Rick Pearlstein uh, is just absolutely sort of confounded by people who want to draw the analogy. And he writes this. I write all this and feel dirty. The longing to assimilate the strange to the familiar is only human. This is a history repeating itself. Who am I to hold myself aloof from it? But it's just not a good way to study history, which, when, when done right, invites readers to tack between finding the familiar and the strange and the strange and the familiar. History roils. Its waves are cumulative, one rolling into another, amplifying their thunder, or they become attenuated via energies pushing into orthogonal or opposite directions, or they swirl into directionless eddies with the ocean's surface appearance as often as not 
obscuring grander currents just below. Now, I get the point that I agree, right? That history doesn't repeat itself, that it is cumulative, that process is important, that things build on each other, often in contradictory ways. But I'm really kind of confounded by the way in which the Nixon historians don't understand the importance of the border in terms of his political symbolism and trajectory. And I think the important thing to understand about El Paso and Forest is that, yes, history is cumulative. And the reason why the cities are now separate is because of federal border policy. So I'm not quite sure that Pearlstein and I disagree on this issue. I'd like for him to talk a lot more about the border. So, by way of conclusion, um, why is the border as a mechanism of political symbol missing from our narratives and analyses? By which I really mean, we need to recover the on-the-ground effects of using a hard, regulated border to fight a drug war. And that insight opens up new lines of inquiries into the hemispheric drug war and its effects on trans-frontier border communities. And we shall end here. <laughs>